The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. morning as we celebrate Easter, we're going to do so by looking at a passage that at first glance has nothing to do with Easter at all. It's just next as Paul and his missionary team are traveling around the Mediterranean world, their first trip, their first missionary journey, just going to place after place. Next, they come to a town called Antioch Pisidia, which is in the middle of what is modern day Turkey. They go into the synagogue and begin to talk there. And this is what they said. Not on Easter Sunday, just on some Sabbath, on some random week in some random month as they traveled around. So in other words, this isn't really an Easter passage. And that's part of the point. There, in fact, are not very many passages in the Bible that are Easter passages. There's a couple in the Gospels, I suppose, that talk about Easter Sunday, the resurrection itself, but not very many. But on the other hand, you could also say that every passage in the Bible is a Good Friday or Easter Sunday passage. It's like it's not a stretch to say that there's one Easter Sunday, but actually every Sunday should be Resurrection Sunday. Because really, when it gets down to it, every passage and every Sunday and every day in the Christian life all through the year is really focused around one simple, single message from God to us. The message of this passage and the message of the Bible and God's message to humankind, the faith of the people of God. It is often announced with some particular clarity in, in, in an Easter Sunday service or in a passage that shows Jesus coming out of the grave. But, but really, it's just everywhere because there's one message from God, the message that we need to hear clearly and always in whatever circumstance we find ourselves because it puts everything else in perspective. If you understand this message, it, it reveals to us what's really going on and what our real concerns are, what our real needs are, and what God's mighty and gracious provision for that need has been. Has been. He has already provided for it. So if you understand then what's really going on and and what our needs are and what God has provided, then you see in it a great invitation, a, a sweet offer, in fact, from the merciful God to everyone who believes, to everyone who believes, an offer of amazing grace It goes something like, here, trust and receive forgiveness and freedom provided through Jesus. Here, trust and receive forgiveness and freedom through Jesus. Maybe this morning, for the first time, you're going to get a chance to like seriously consider that, to actually think about it and weigh it out. May God open your eyes to it and capture you with it. 
On the other hand, I imagine for most of us here this morning, you're familiar with it, and, and it is something that is, that is somewhat old. Well, maybe now God would lift it up and, and make it fresh and new and kind of hold it up higher in your eyes and, and maybe cause you to glimpse it in a different way or to marvel at it in a particular different nuance. And, and may God then move you to renew your embrace of it and, and to, to appreciate the power of it in a new and different way. So wherever it is, either way, if this is, if this is the first time or if this is the umpteenth time that you're, you're going to sit in front of this and consider, may God meet you and speak to you here this morning. Looking at Acts chapter 13 this morning, and verses 13 to 15 give us the general setting. Paul on a Sabbath has come to a synagogue with his traveling team, and, and the leaders there ask him, do you have any word of exhortation to share with everybody? And I suppose Paul thought for a second, thought I could probably think of something to say. Give me the microphone. And what then follows is what he said. So we're looking, we're actually, we're looking at a sermon that Paul preached some years ago. Verses 17 to 22, if you look at them now in Acts 13, verses 17 to 22 are a quick thousand-year history lesson. Just skip through it there. Begins with, with God, and he skips through Abraham and Egypt and the, the wilderness and the conquest of the land, and then how it is that God gave them Samuel and God raised up for them a king when they asked for one and then God took down that king because he was bad and then he raised up David. It's, it's this quick thousand year history that David always tells from a perspective. God is the subject of every major verb in this quick history lesson. God's doing something. He chose, God made, God led them out, God carried them, God destroyed seven nations. He gave the people the land, he gave them judges, he gave them a king, he took down that king, he gave them David. David, in whom I have found a man after my own heart who will do all my will. A thousand years of what God's doing. And if you were listening to this originally, there in that congregation, these folks knew their, their scriptures really well. They, they were very familiar with all this. And so they'd be tracking along and they'd be thinking, yeah, uh-huh, yep, uh-huh, uh-huh, sure, yeah. Where's this going? Where's this going? It's going somewhere, I think. Where's it going? And Paul's saying, not, where's, where's it going? You know, not my monologue here, but where's history going? Where's what God's doing going? Well, let's read. Picking up now in verse 23, I'm going to read down through verse 43. A bunch of verses, I'm going to read them rather quickly, but follow along and, and see here's where it's going. David, verse 23, and of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, no. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation, 
For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he's spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perished, and perish, for I am doing a work in your days a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. A long passage from which I'm going to draw just two observations here. Here's the first. Jesus is the Savior God promised to send. Emphasis there on Jesus. Jesus is the Savior God promised to send. Verse 23, And of this man David's offspring God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So he travels Another thousand years in that one verse there, David leads to the son of David, Jesus, where all of this has been going all along. God has been working through all of history to make and then to fulfill a promise to send a Savior named Jesus. And again, with this, with this group he has in front of him that really knows their Bibles very well, Paul's going to then proceed to weave together Scripture passages and human eyewitnesses. He's going to go back and forth. So we're going to follow him as he goes back and forth between scripture passages and human witnesses. He begins with the scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 7, is alluded to here in verse 23. That's where God made the Davidic covenant, a covenant with this king, David, which he said, I promise you, your lineage after you will reign as kings over Israel until we get to one great one one special king, 
This is of immense importance. This, this passage was of immense importance because it gave shape to the idea of the Savior King, the special anointed ruler. The word we often use is the word Christ. It gave shape to what that Christ would be, where he would come from, and what he would do. He would rule the people of God in justice and in righteousness forever and would fix everything. Would make the world right. He would save. That's the passage of Scripture alluded to there in verse 23. And then we get personal testimony. The prophet John the Baptist. Who readily admits, I'm not that guy. That's not me. But then he put his finger on, but there is one coming. Behold, the Lamb of God. There is one coming. I'm a prophet from God, and I'm not worthy to be the lowest of servants who would untie his sandal straps. He is so mighty and so high and so exalted. Behold, Jesus. Scripture and testimony. Which probably immediately triggers some concerns in his audience. I thought that Jesus was crucified. That's a problem. Because you're saying that Jesus is the great Savior King in the line of David who would rule forever. And you're saying that John the Baptist said that he is of immense power and authority and I'm so lowly in comparison to him. But I think, isn't it true, that Jesus was crucified, hung on a tree, which Scripture says, Deuteronomy, that means that a man hung on a tree is dying under the curse of God. Not the anointing, not the blessing, the curse of God. Well, Paul faces that head on in verses 27 to 29. The rulers did indeed condemn Jesus unjustly because they didn't understand what I'm talking about right now. They didn't understand who he was. They didn't understand what the scriptures actually said about him. And so unwittingly, they actually fulfilled the scripture that said that God's chosen king would first be despised and rejected and esteemed not, but slaughtered like a lamb, killed, rejected. Scripture, Isaiah 53 for starters. And now back to personal testimony. And here we have to slow down. Like this is, it goes back and forth all through the passage. And we've got to slow down here because this begins to get to the point of what Easter's about. Because he comes to this point and says, yeah, Good Friday happened, just like it was written it had to happen. They hung him on a tree. And you can see what he begins to do here. They hung him on a tree, and then others took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. That's the end of verse 29. He died under God's curse, yes. But that does not mean he is dead under God's curse. Verse 30, God raised him from the dead. And those who were disciples of Jesus, those who walked with him from Galilee all through his ministry there and saw the miracles and heard all of his teaching, who saw him heal the blind and cast out demons and walk upon water and saw him confound the Pharisees and hypocrites and have mercy on the prostitutes and tax collectors, who saw him command nature, 
Wind and the waves obeyed him. And then they saw him beaten, though, and cast down and cursed, yet reviled not. They saw him stripped naked and hung on a tree, killed, meek, all the way to the end. And then those same ones also saw him alive again and put their, put their fingers into the nail holes and into the spear hole in his side. Do you get this? They saw him dead. Some of them took his body in their hands, they pulled him off the tree, forced his hands over the spikes, carried him down, wrapped his corpse up. They felt him over the hours beginning to get cold and starting to stiffen up a little bit. They carried his corpse and they laid him in a tomb. Dead. They saw him and they touched him. And then three days later, they saw him and they touched him again, alive. And then it says for many more days after that, this alive Jesus didn't, didn't like stagger along and like barely make it and need, and need them to carry him along. He walked around, he talked with them, he taught them, he joked with them, he ate breakfast with them. I touched his hand when I served him fish and I saw him put it in his mouth, he ate it, he was alive, alive, alive. And those are the ones who testify of these things to us now. Jesus is alive again, and that means he is the one who was sent to save. So this, this back and forth, what's really important to see here is that these are witnesses now. We've got the scripture, and we've got the human testimony that is not just human testimony to, I believe the scriptures. It's human testimony to, I don't know what to say. He was dead. I am totally sure of that. And then he was alive again. I am totally sure of that. That's what I'm testifying to. That means the scriptures are about him. This is unreal, and yet so real. So watch, watch the back and forth here between what's witness to and the scripture. Witness to and the scripture. 32 and 33, the good news is that God kept his long ago made promise to the fathers. He kept it now to us by raising Jesus. That's what was witnessed to, that Jesus was raised. And so the scripture, Psalm 2, that's about Jesus. Psalm 2, if you were to read it all, you see a quote there from one verse. It's the great enthronement psalm about God setting a son of David on the throne and raising him up and stretching that one's reign over all the earth with a scepter of iron, crushing every rebellion and every opposition and all evil everywhere. The kingdom of God. Who's that about? The one who was raised, Jesus. And then verse 34 again. You know he was raised, right? Never to see corruption, the decay of the grave. And so in the scripture, Isaiah 55 in this case. That's about Jesus. That's the way that the, the forlorn people of God receive this great promise, this, this great saving ruling, this blessed hope of David. How do we receive it? Jesus. And another scripture, Psalm 16. 
That's not about David. David's dead, buried, and decayed in his grave. He fell asleep, laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. But 37, have I mentioned that God raised Jesus as was testified to? That one, Jesus, is not in the grave. And so, Psalm 16, how do you find the presence of God where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore? Jesus. you got to see Paul's tactic here on this non-Easter Sunday morning. Paul's tactic in, in the sermon as he's preaching in front of in front of people who know the scriptures, is he's going back and forth. We, we could explore every one of these passages. There are about six mentioned here, probably a couple more, but at least six. We could explore every one of them and see all the context and the fullness of blessings. But these folks know their Bible. And so what Paul's doing is he just goes and he grabs a scripture and he picks up just one phrase or one verse from it. And kind of like picking up a cloth or like a napkin or a tablecloth, you pick up the, just a little bit of it and the whole thing kind of rises. He grabs one verse or one phrase and says, remember that part of scripture? All the blessing there, the reign of the king over all the earth, the tearing down of evil, the delivering of his people, the presence of God and joy. Remember all that? All that? Yeah, yeah. Well, who's that deliverer king? Scripture. John the Baptist, personal testimony. John the Baptist said, my race is finished. I hand the baton to Jesus. And then God raised him from the dead. Underlined. Personal testimony, irrefutable resurrection. Where all of this has been going throughout all of history, every single scripture passage in one way or another has been leading up to the point of saying, Jesus, that's what I promised. That's what I sent, a Savior. And his name is Jesus. Ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin, I've been working on that, and been working on that, been working on that, and it's been accomplished. How do you know? He came out of the grave alive again. So do you know that? Do you? The resurrection means something. Even when everybody all around you, and I, and I kind of suspect that maybe now is a little bit of a, of a different take on, I mean, certainly it's different here in this room. It's a different sort of Easter service here in this room. And maybe you're, you're at home, you're sitting on your couch, maybe you're wearing your pajamas still, and you're not in a religious environment. And there's not a lot of Easter lilies and there's not a lot of decorations and a lot of people dressed up wearing suits and hats. And, and it's just you in your ordinary, everyday environment. Maybe it's more like Tuesday than Easter Sunday usually is. And you hear me talking about all this, and you think, yeah, okay. But it's easy to look around at the world, maybe even a little more on this Easter morning, and say, nobody believes that. Nobody believes that. I mean, in our environment, 
Christians do, I suppose. But out here, I don't know anybody who believes that. They either disagree with it or never think about it and never care, and it seems completely irrelevant. And it is very easy to go on for many days in a row and to click through many channels and to go, through, go to many meetings and to listen to many songs and watch many movies and to encounter many elements in the world and never, not once, hear Jesus. And in that environment, it is very easy to think, really? Is the whole Christian thing really true? I don't know. You ever wonder that? Every religion has got their set of writings that they call scriptures. And every religion has a set of people who believe them. And every religion has some subset of those people that look wonderful and great and like it's changed their lives. And some subset of people who look like they have no idea what their teachings even are. They're, they're so far off. So you got a mix in every religion, teachings that some believe and seem to have really been helped by and that others, mm, less so. And Christianity slots in among them just like one of the other 10,000 religions of the world, so it seems. Maybe this one's a little more popular than others, but... Mm. And then along comes something unique. Scripture and human testimony, not to the Scripture. Human testimony to a remarkable, miraculous, impossible reality that that verifies the scripture. Jesus came out of the grave alive, or he didn't, and this is all false. But if he did, never mind that the world doesn't think about him, never mind that the world doesn't care, never mind that the world strongly disagrees, if he rose, God has acted to send a Savior. It all comes down to did he rise or not. And in the end, there is enough evidence to believe that and enough non-evidence to not believe that. I'm not going to call you an idiot if you don't believe that, by no means. But I do want to invite you, if this is the first time you're considering this, I want to invite you to think about something carefully. There are people here who did not believe that Jesus could rise because nobody rises from the dead. Yet Jesus brought some people back to life, but they died again. He, he came back to life in a totally different way, a way that was impossible. They did not believe it. They were heartbroken and crushed when Jesus was killed. That was, that was the end. And contrary to their expectation, stunningly, amazingly, they 
They saw him and touched him again alive, and that changed everything for them. History is witness. The church was born out of a fact, not a theory. Born out of a, out of a, a man come back to life, not out of a teaching. The teaching explains what the resurrection is, but the resurrection is fact. Maybe you don't believe it. Okay, but it might be worth considering. I think it is worth considering because if this is true, everything else that's not of this Jesus is false. Everything. Every other offer from every other religion in the world Every other offer from every other non-religious philosophy or code of ethics or human hope. Everything that is not about this Jesus of the Bible is not of God and is false. And leaves a person on a dead end road apart from God destined to destruction. There's a lot at stake here. This should be considered And Christianity says, you heard it read earlier, Christianity says, the Bible says everywhere, it all hinges on did this man come out of the grave alive again or not? A fact of history. The evidence of a changed people, changed not by teaching but changed by fact, says, yes, I think you should consider that. Ask God, is this true or not? He'll speak. We don't say that angrily or or boastfully that, hey, we're right and everybody else is wrong. We don't say that like with that kind of attitude. We say it thankful because as Paul says, this is the good news that God kept his promise to send Jesus. This is the good news that he actually sent one that is like the Savior King that we so desperately need. This is who we want and can never make and can never find. A king who will rule and put down every evil everywhere and fix all that is wrong will bring to the world justice and righteousness and beauty and good and love and peace. First in the human heart and then everywhere else. We long for that. We're looking for it. And God, thank goodness, has provided that. His name is Jesus. You should consider that. And I I know that most of us here this morning This is very familiar to you. So what I want to ask you is, in the world that doesn't believe, do you consider that? Do you consider this Jesus? Is he near the surface for you? God has done something remarkable, and it is very easy for us. We believe it, but it's very easy for us to forget that and just take our cues from the world all around us. We don't hear Jesus, and we don't remind ourselves of him. God has acted. God has sent. God has kept his promise. God has sent a Savior, Jesus, to me, for me. Do you consider him and rest in him? And when you rest in him, what you should rest on and think about is particularly what it is he's done to save. That's the second point. God kept his promise and sent a Savior whose name is Jesus. But how is it that he saves exactly? That's the second point. Jesus saves by providing the justification 
we could not get by our own works. Jesus saves by providing the justification we could not get by our own works, by our own efforts, by our own performance. Justification is a big word. Think of it like this, like a legal term, a legal verdict of not guilty. In a court setting, a judge or a jury pronounces upon somebody guilty or not guilty, and when the person's pronounced not guilty, any accusation or pending punishment is lifted off of them, they are set free, and they walk out freed from burden and obligation and any sense of condemnation, not guilty. That's what justification is about. It's a Bible word, a big word. And that's what we're talking about here. When God promised to send a Savior, we immediately bump into the assumption here that there is a problem that we need to be saved from. A problem that we can't fix ourselves but need God to intervene and save us from. And again, Paul and his audience share this assumption because they know the Bible. It's everywhere in the Bible. But you might have to look twice today to see it because commonly today we more look at problems and if we think of Savior, we think of saving from problems that are very real problems, very big things that we certainly should consider. But in some real sense, every problem that our modern society tends to focus on is downstream from the greatest problem. If the spring out of which the water bubbles and if the pool that forms there is poisoned, then everything downstream from it will also be poisoned. And to focus on the downstream problems, real that they are, is, is to miss actual solution. And God constantly wants to direct our attention back to the source, the, the root problem. He will address everything else for sure, also, absolutely. But he wants to address our attention back to the core. The world and everything in it now is broken. And all the communities that we form and all the human actions and interactions we undertake are, are poisoned because we, in our hearts, at our core, are fallen in sin. We've turned away from God and done what is right in our own eyes. And in so doing, have earned his judgment. The Bible says this just everywhere. About everyone. No one is righteous. No, not one. It's in the Old and New Testament. All like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's just, it's just everywhere. It's just everywhere. By nature, we, who we are, by nature we are separated from him and adrift in the world by ourselves, the God that we were made for, the God who is good and beautiful, the God who, the Bible says that the God who is love. We are separated from him and missing him as we walk through life. By nature, from birth, by nature, Human beings do not know him. Maybe know about him some things, but don't know him relationally. Aren't connected with him. Don't commune with him. 
That's the terrible problem that's at, that's at the core, the, the spring, from which everything downstream, problems that they are, but they're just downstream problems. God wants to address the root. And so he sent a Savior, Jesus, to address the sin problem in our hearts, to address our alienation and our tendency to wander and to turn and to reject him. That's what he sent his son to do. That's what was going on on Good Friday when Jesus hung on the cross, condemned, cursed by God. He bore in himself what we should have borne. He bore in himself condemnation from God where we should have been condemned. He was separated from God where we are to be separated from God. That's what Good Friday is about. That's why we call it good, is that something is happening to Jesus that should have happened to people. But what Easter morning is about is that God raised him from the dead. He did not leave him in the grave under that curse. He brought him out alive again. And what Easter morning then is, is not just an only evidence that this is the one that God sent to save, but evidence and, and a verdict that, and it worked. It's God's stamp of approval. It's God's raising him up. Yes. And I bring him back to life victorious over that curse, victorious over that death, victorious over that grave to show what I was trying to do, I actually accomplished. Curse removed. And so verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore. God raised him up. Therefore, let it be known to you that through this man, Jesus, Forgiveness of sins is announced. In Jesus, forgiveness of sins is announced. And freedom. Freedom is actually accomplished. Forgiveness and so freedom. Forgiveness of sin. The guilt that rests on us because of our sin, because of our rejection of God and his ways, forgiven. That guilt, that condemnation, taken off. And what then happens is freedom. You've got to stop and think about this. Freed from everything that the law of Moses couldn't free you from. What, what is that about? The law of Moses. Again, these are Jewish folks. So they are very familiar with the law of Moses. God gave his law through Moses not so that we could know what to do to please him, but so that we could realize that we don't do what pleases him. Here's God's law laid out in front of us. God requires X, and you don't. God requires Y, and you don't. 
Not all the time, not perfectly, not, not enough. And people may pick up that law and say, okay, I will try harder. This is, this is the burden of religion. Have you ever been here? People may pick up that law and say, okay, there's what God requires, and I don't, I will try harder. I will try harder. I will try harder. And then I will be able to accomplish it, and then I will be free of God's anger. No, you won't. You couldn't be freed through the law of Moses. I, actually, I try harder, and I, I double down on that effort, and I, and I, I create some accountability partners, and, and I, I list them out in front of me, and I, and I be really clear about it. I post it on my mirror in, this morning, in the morning so I know what to do, and I remind myself in my planner so I get what to do, and I give myself a, a little reminder text. But I keep turning away. Why is that? Because it's not just that you can't. It's that something in you won't. We are a people from birth fallen with a nature that the Bible describes to us is in bondage to sin. We are people from birth that are, yes, under the penalty of sin, but even worse. We can't get away from sin because we are in bondage to it. There's something in us you can't cut yourself open and find it, but there's something inside of us, somewhere in our hearts that actually runs from God, that actually resists him, that actually is not just not allowed to come in, though we want to, doesn't want to come in. Find it in yourself. When you, he when you hear something that says, Jesus is the only way, and something in you says, there should be another way. Why, do you, why, do, why does yourself say that? Why does yourself say that? Because yourself wants yourself's way, not God's. You read what God requires. You read a, a commandment that's, that's clear, and, and you find yourself, ah, I did it again. Ah, I did it again. Why did you do that? Because something in you is broken and wants to go your own way. The law of Moses can never fix that in you. The law of Moses, the listing out of the requirements, can never make you free from that bondage, that thing that's locked up on your heart and drags you away from God. It can't. It doesn't have the power. All it can show you is you have a problem right there. Something in you rejects him. And what God has said, this is sweet, this is sweet. What God has said is, I, I see that, I know that. I'm going to save you from that. Not just save you from the penalty of sin because you have run from me, but I'm going to save you from the bondage to sin that makes you want to run from me. I'm going to save you from the penalty of sin that brings upon you wrath. And I'm going to save you from the bondage of sin that brings upon you blindness to the truth. The law of Moses and any other attempt to be good people, 
any other attempt to make ourselves worthy, any other attempt to follow what God says, it cannot forgive us and cannot free us. God in Jesus can and does. This is, I, I think, perhaps in the course of my life, sweeter than just being forgiven is being set free. To be set free from the burden of having to try to make myself worthy, being set free from the inability to do so in the first place. free from bondage to sin, free to walk in a new and different life. Because see, the resurrection not only says Jesus is the one, and the resurrection not only says, and it worked, but the resurrection also very concretely provides you forgiveness and freedom. When you trust Jesus, God includes you in him and raises you to newness of life. And so you walk different and you walk differently. You walk different as a different person with a new life. God actually comes to live inside of you and moment by moment by moment, his spirit at work in you changes you, changes you. You can be changed. You can walk in newness of life. You can walk with the Spirit of God at work in you. You can walk under the, the hand of God, not for anger, but the hand of God for blessing, the hand of God for protection, the hand of God for growth. It is a beautiful and sweet and good thing that comes, yes, to be forgiven, amen, but he, he unpoisons the, the pool and he makes the water pure so that then what flows downstream out of you is a new and different life so that everything that you are and everyone that you touch is different. Freedom really it worked in Jesus. You should consider this. Are you aware of your guilt before God? In Jesus, it can be forgiven. Are you aware of this, this thing in you that resists him, that runs its own way, and that constantly fails? Jesus can set you free from that. He'll free you to become who he made human beings to be. People who commune with him and walk in holiness and righteousness and beauty and in love like him, with him, for the world. That is good news. That is good news. This is a marvelous thing. In Jesus, the resurrected one, is forgiveness of sin and freedom. The greatest problem that human beings face addressed in Jesus. For everyone who believes... Not for everyone. For everyone who believes. So what do you think you should do with this? Believe. Don't wait 
Don't put it off. Don't look around and say, well, no one else believes this. Is God speaking to you? Do you believe this? There's an offer here, and there's also a warning. That's the indented verses in, in, 40, in that's indented saying in verse 41. Again, Scripture. Paul references back to a time when the people of Israel heard an offer from God and said, no, no thanks. They scoffed at it. And he warned them, well, there is a consequence to scoffing at my offer. You will see something astounding and you will perish when it comes. There is a consequence to scoffing at the offer of God. There is a consequence for embracing it in belief. There's the consequence is forgiveness and freedom and life being made new forever in communion with the God for whom your soul sings out. That's a good consequence, but there's a consequence for scoffing at it and saying, never mind, I don't want that right now. Don't go there. If this is the first time you've considered this or the first time you've considered it seriously, take God up on his offer. Believe and be forgiven and freed. Easter Sunday is a great time to become a Christian. A great time to come to life. That's what Easter Sunday is about. That's what God offers in Christ raised. Take him up on it. But I recognize that most of us here this morning, you have taken him up on that. You have believed. And really, as always, as every Sunday, it is the message from God all throughout the Bible for every day of our life. And the call to you, Christian, is still believe. Because... That God has provided all of this in Jesus does not mean that we always walk in it. Because unfortunately, it is common for Christians to step back and look at the world and forget Jesus. And and really kind of then to revert to, I think I should go my own way. Seems reasonable. Or to revert to, I think the way to please God is to work hard at obeying him. The work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. Believe. Let me put it a different way, more theological terms. Justification by faith alone, not by works. If you think about it, that's what this passage is saying. You'll be freed not by the law of Moses. Justification, being freed by faith, not by works, means that you stand before God really and truly forgiven and really and truly with the bonds the bondage of sin broken off of you. Really. You stand before God really and truly then 
as an object of his delight, already pleasing to him. Freed from the burden to strive for his approval. Really. Indwelt by God right now. Really. So that means having God living inside of you right now. Really. Before you do a thing, that's the truth about you. You have God living in you, God pleased with you, God smiling upon you, God's hand on you to shelter and protect and empower and equip. You stand with no condemnation on you. That's where you stand. And if you believe that, then you can say, in this moment and on this day, I will walk in this life that is mine with God, with God's power. You can do that. You've been set free. You can do that. You don't have to walk on eggshells. You don't have to walk before a God who's, who's angry with you and frustrated. You can walk in a new life that God has given you. Believe that. And then do it. The Spirit of God is in you, really. You have His hand on you and His power in you. You can look at sin offered to you, offering you a promise, and you can see through it and understand that's not the case. I, I've, been, I've been liberated from, from blindness, and I can see through the lie. And you can say no to it. And you can walk in righteousness. You can. And so do so. Do not offer yourself again as a voluntary slave. Walk in righteousness. Now that does involve you making some decisions and some effort. Yeah, but you can. You have the power. To walk with God in newness of life by the power of his spirit in you. That is good news for every single day. And what that means is that what follows on downstream from, from this saving work, what follows on downstream is righteousness and justice and generous loving beauty coming from you as God works through you. You can. That's who you are. That's the life laid in front of you. Embrace it. Embrace that power in a new and fresh way and walk in it. God has raised up the Savior that he promised. His name is Jesus. Look at the resurrection. And what he said he would do, it actually worked. The curse is broken. Look at the resurrection. And you can walk in newness of life with him dwelling in you, free from penalty, free from bondage, and one day free even from the presence of sin. Look at the resurrection. The resurrection means things, sweet and glorious things. God kept his word and has acted to save his people from sin in a way that we could never do ourselves. He did it. So trust him. 
Become a Christian this morning if you haven't. And if you are, trust him and walk justified in fellowship with God in newness of life. Let me pray. Father, there's a lot of text here and a lot of theories running around in the air and maybe in our hearts and minds, a lot of questions. Please, Father, settle all of them. Make clear for each individual person what is most important for that person right now. Please. Would you save people right now? Please. Would you stir in your people a confidence and a rest that this faith they have believed is right? Will you move your people to walk in newness of life, dependent on you dwelling in them, free? Whatever is most important for wherever people are, do that thing right now. Build your church, and we would all be careful to say now and sing joyfully for eternity, you have done mighty things. You did it. We didn't. You did. So please do it now. Build your church and honor the name of Jesus here, now, and forever in his name that we pray and say thanks. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.